rights. Am I on okay? Testing, testing. Okay, very good. All right. Um, well, today I will be bringing God's word to us from Luke chapter 12, uh, taking a break from our Romans series. So you can be turning to Luke chapter 12. For those few of you who were at the youth camp, uh, you'll have to excuse you. You've already heard this message, but uh, I didn't think it would hurt to hear it again. And I thought it would be beneficial for the whole of our church to hear this. This was from uh, our youth camp back in June, which the theme was of on fear. And uh, I got to preach on the subject of do not fear and thought that would serve us this morning. Pastor Paul, our lead pastor, is on his uh, well-deserved summer break for the next three weeks. And so I'll be preaching today. Brendan's preaching next week, I think, and then Pastor Mike Lilly the week after that. Um, so turn in your Bibles, if you have one in front of you, to Luke chapter 12. The words will be projected for us as well. But if you have a Bible, uh, it would be good for you to have that in front of you. And the theme for this morning is, say, do not fear, but I titled it really, Good Fear Gone Bad. Good Fear Gone Bad, and I hope you'll see that from our passage today. So let's start by reading the passage for us in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 4 through to verse 7. Jesus says this, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. God's word to us this morning. I encourage you to keep that passage open. Let's pray as we start to hear God from God's word to us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this important subject of fear and how you call us to look to you alone. Help us, we pray. Help us to order our minds, our hearts, our spirits right before you. Speak to us, we pray, and equip us by your spirit. Help me to handle your word rightly and help us to hear and sit under your word to us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Just to give you an outline for our walk through this passage, you're going to start off just to reflect briefly on what is good fear. There is a good sort of fear that I think God intends for us to understand. And we need to understand that before we get to the second main point, which is good fear gone bad. I think we have this outline to show, if you can put that up. So we'll go from good fear, we'll understand how good fear has gone bad. And then from our passage, we'll understand what Jesus is leading for us in terms of the cure for bad fear. And then finally, we'll end with what that looks like in practice, the cure in practice. So let's start just by reflecting on what is good fear? How is fear intended to function? Let me start off with a little quiz for everybody. There are many types of fears and phobias that I'm sure you're, you're familiar with or heard of. Some are more common and we're familiar with those terms more than others. Uh, to see if you know these ones, start off with a common one. Uh, what is claustrophobia? 
confined spaces, that's right, fear of confined spaces. Quite a common one apparently, about 5% of the population experiences claustrophobia to some degree or another. How about arachnophobia? Fear of spiders, very good. All right, we'll make it a little bit more tricky then. Ophidiophobia. Ophidiophobia. I can't hear you, but that's fear of snakes. Ophidiophobia. How about acrophobia? I think Anthony knows. Heights, fear of heights. Acrophobia, not acrobats, but fear of heights. How about, here's, here's a long, complicated one for you. Teromahanophobia. Teromahanophobia. Any clues? It's a little misleading because it's got a silent P in the front of it. Teromahanophobia. No. Teroma, like terror, pterodactyl, it's fear of flying. Anyway, things to learn if you really want to. But I suspect even if you didn't know those names, and I had to look them all up to get to this point, um, we understand and recognize what those fears represent and why people might have them. There, in each of them, there is some potential danger, some potential pain associated with them. And God has given us this capacity to um, understand the threat of danger around us in certain situations so that fear acts properly as an alarm bell, an alarm bell to warn us of danger. And good fear, then, is meant to function to protect us so that we avoid those dangers and we enjoy the good of God's creation. So if you're caught in a terrible storm, for example, good fear leads you to seek shelter away from falling trees and lightning strikes and so, so on and so forth. If you're uh, toasting marshmallows over a campfire and your marshmallow falls into the flames, good fear is meant to stop you putting your hand in and picking it back up again. All my career I've worked in the chemical industry, working with high, uh, hazardous chemicals at different times, and there is a measure in which our training uh, includes making sure that we suitably fear the, the dangers associated with these, those chemicals so that we take the, the right precautions and protections when we're handling them as part of our training. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He knows how good fear is meant to function in us as God's creatures, as his creation. And yet no one knows more clearly than Jesus Christ, how the fall has affected mankind and how sin distorts and damages what God calls good and how sin has made good things bad, included, including how our fear is intended to work in us. And this morning, in the context of our passage, I want us to focus particularly on how the fear of man affects us and affects all of us, I think, to one degree or another. So that brings us quickly on to our second point and, and to see from our passage how good fear has gone bad. Now by its proper definition, a fear becomes a phobia when it is in excess or out of proportion compared to the actual danger in any particular circumstance. Now there may be genuine uh, mental or emotional health issues involved with why someone Sense, someone's sense of fear is out of proportion 
with an actual danger. And there are legitimate ways to help and to care for someone when they're dealing with those aspects of fears. But in our passage this morning, Jesus is speaking to all of us. And he's speaking to us at a far more fundamental level, at our spiritual level, of how our beliefs distort and our sin distorts our sense of fear. He's addressing how good fear has gone bad. And he starts in verse 4, addressing where our fear is bigger than the actual danger. He says, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. Now, taken on its own, the honest response to that verse is, what are you talking about? What more is there? Didn't we just talk about how good fear functions to protect us from danger? Surely being killed is a danger which is meant to function to protect us. That fear is appropriate, surely. Well, of course, Jesus knows what he's saying, and he's saying it in a deliberately provocative manner, and he explains what he's talking about, hinted in the second half of that verse, and then developed further in verse 5. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. Well, what is there, Jesus? What is there beyond that? He goes on to tell us. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The reason that Jesus tells his disciples not to fear those who can only kill the body is because it is a distorted fear. It's addressing how good fear has gone bad. It's a distortion that takes being killed and elevates it beyond what is appropriate, making physical death the absolute and ultimate terrible thing. And yet at the same time, it takes a distortion of what is really the absolute and terrible worst thing, being called into judgment before God, being found guilty of breaking his laws and being cast into the eternal agony of hell, taking that true, ultimate, terrible, bad thing and reducing it. Reducing it and reducing God, reducing eternity to something less serious, less important than what can happen to you here in the here and now. And Jesus is saying this to his disciples at a, a crucial point in his ministry. He knows that the threat of death for himself is now looming ever closer. And with it, it is looming ever closer for those who choose to follow him. Just before our passage that we read in chapter 12, at the end of Luke's gospel, chapter 11, Jesus has been invited to a party, uh, a dinner party at the house of one of the religious leaders of the Pharisees. And it's fair to say that Jesus doesn't really uh, engage in the party spirit. In fact, he doesn't hold back in condemning his host and, his, and their guests for hypocrisy, for self-righteousness, and for ignoring and for condemning the Old Testament prophets. And chapter 11 ends with Luke saying, as he went from there, as Jesus went from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him 
in something he might say. And then he starts chapter 12. In the meantime, so while all this is going on, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered, they were trampling, uh, trampling one another, he began to teach his disciples. So our verses this morning come in the context of a huge crowd gathered around Jesus and around his disciples. And no doubt in such a large crowd, there were Pharisees and those who were um, favored the Pharisees, those who were looking to find some excuse to do away with Jesus and wouldn't stop to do away with those who held to his teaching. Under these circumstances, Jesus presents this loving warning to his disciples and to his friends and to us here this morning. To not let fear of what man might do to you, to let it be distorted. Don't let good fear go that bad and elevate the fear of man over the fear of God. For the disciples, the prospect of being killed for standing with Jesus was a very real one. More, more than likely, all but John was martyred for their faith. And throughout church history, from this, the day of the scriptures, we have them as we receive them now, through to today, disciples of Jesus Christ have continued to face being killed for their faith. There remains many parts in the world where Christians who are seeking to be obedient to Christ's teachings uh, it's enough to get them killed at the hands of men. Now, you and I, living in America today, currently are unlikely to face such deadly opposition for the sake of Christ. But we don't need to be the threat of being killed for our sinful and broken hearts and minds to distort the fear of what man might do to us to allow us to elevate the fear of man and allow it to occupy a place of dominance in our lives that is the right place for the almighty God alone. Once the fear of man eclipses the fear of God, we are more concerned with man's approval than we are with God. And just to be clear, this isn't limited to being a Christian or limited to the fear of being condemned for being a Christian. Once the fear of man has distorted within us and is above the fear of God. Uh, any fear of man can occupy our minds in a place that is intended for the Lord alone. We can become preoccupied and submitted to things in ways that God only intended us to be submitted and preoccupied with him. A distorted fear of man, it may affect how we bear the name Christian, but it can also affect many other things. It can dominate our thoughts when we're around friends and peers, when we're talking about what sports teams we follow, when we think about what clothes or shoes we should wear, when we talk about what movies or TV shows we're keeping up with and what computer games we play, what car we drive, what neighborhood we live in. The list goes on and on and on. And of course, nowadays, social media can fuel this distorted fear because we get very real feedback in what other people think about us in terms of likes and comments. Or maybe we're left to wonder why somebody hasn't liked or commented on something we've posted. Fear of man can affect how we think about our schoolwork or our job 
how we pursue success and praise from teachers, from parents, from a boss, or how we cover up and make excuses for our mistakes and our failures. One Christian counselor, Ed Welch, has said, fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. I think that's probably fair. So we would do well to listen to Jesus' words and warning and counsel in our passage so that we can recognize and can confess before God where good fear has gone bad within our hearts. And so we can receive his cure for bad fear that Jesus offers to us. So that leads us to the third point, the cure for bad fear. And before we look at the passage and and understand what the scripture is offering us to say about the right cure for bad fear, I think it's important, first of all, to call out potential bad cures for bad fear that we might have presented to us or be entertaining. Because if we think about, if we recognize that uh, that, uh, good fear gone bad is a form of wrong thinking, then it doesn't help us to replace that wrong thinking with other types of wrong thinking. And there's plenty of it around us. I'll give you a couple of examples for you to think about, and you can decide for yourself how much you've seen them and been exposed to them for yourselves. The first type will be the the trust-in-yourself mentality. You don't need to fear. Don't be afraid. You can do it. Now, don't get me wrong, that can be good encouragement, and I'm sure everyone who's a parent has said that to their children at one point or another. When they're hesitant or frightened to do something, you know that they're capable of doing. But there is a danger, if that is all that is said, to fight fear. You can do it. Just try harder. Just trust in yourself. Be harder working. Be stronger. Be smarter. Be better looking, have more money, and then you won't have anything to fear. Put as crassly like that, I think we recognize it. It simply is a lie. And yet I think it's also very, very common around us. And Jesus' words expose it to be a lie. Sure, doing those things may feel like they help to some degree and for some amount of time, You may become stronger than those around you. You may become smarter than those around you. Maybe you become better dressed than those around you, but not forever. Jesus deliberately, by his words, he takes us to the ultimate and final reality that everyone will face. He will all face death and judgment before God. And in doing so, he helps us get our fears in order to see the cure that we really need need. Fighting fears with a wrong way of thinking reminds me of a practice I developed as a young boy. The very first bedroom that I have memories of was a great bedroom. My parents put this Superman wallpaper up all the way around my bedroom. It had this reoccurring pattern of images of Superman in various heroic poses. And it it certainly fueled my, my fascination with superheroes. But I remember that I developed this rather childlike habit with dealing with fear when I was a little boy because of this. My bed in my bedroom was right up against one of the walls. And at nighttime, if I ever heard a noise, a bump, or something like that that made me scared, 
I went maybe wandering about mon monsters under the bed. Whatever it was, I would lay up right close next to one of my walls, and I would tell myself, there's nothing to fear, because Superman is all around me, and he will protect me. Which, of course, is sweet and childlike, and ultimately quite useless. Because if any of those things actually turned out to be substantial, if they actually ever had any real threat to them, then what was I really hoping in to protect me? Wallpaper. In the same way, Jesus' words challenge us and they help us to make sure that we don't deal with a distorted view of, of fear by putting our trust in something that ultimately will still let us down. You can do good things. You can work out. You can study hard. You can help other people. You can have a nice family. You can get a well-paying job. But those are not things to trust in to protect you through life. And they will not be able to protect you at the end of life either. That's one error to be aware of. Another error in terms of wrong thinking to deal with the fear of man is to try in our best efforts to give absolutely no care to the thoughts and opinions of others at all. That might sound like a, right, a good idea, right? If I shouldn't elevate other people above God so that I fear what they might do to me or what they might think about me, then perhaps I can just deal with that by not caring at all about what others think. I'll just go about my own way, do my own thing. doesn't matter who you are, whether you're my peers, whether you're my parents, my teachers, my pastors, government authorities, whoever you are, I'm not going to fear you. In fact, I don't really care what you think or what you do. I think that's pretty prevalent in our society, you know, in the world around us too. If you have authority over me, I don't fear you because I really don't care. Of course, from the scriptures and the, from the Christian point of view, there is a problem with that in that Jesus says we are to care. We are to appropriately care about what others think and we are to appropriately care about others. We're to, in humility, count others as more significant than ourselves. And for people in certain roles in our lives, honoring God means honoring people in those roles of authority that God has placed over us. So Jesus is in no way suggesting that we deal with a distorted fear of man by deliberately not caring about anyone else around us. So what is this right cure that he offers? We've already seen it in verse 5. The right cure for bad fear is the right fear of God. Verse 5 I will warn you whom to fear, he says. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. When we think correctly about the worst that man can do to us in comparison to thinking correctly about the worst thing that God can do to us, our distorted fear of man is pulled down and starts to get put back into its proper place. And our distorted fear of the Lord is lifted up into its proper place. 
And there is actually meant to be some comfort in remembering that it is God alone who has authority to cast into hell. It means that absolutely no one else can. Not your peers, not your enemies, not even Satan has the power to inflict the absolute worst thing upon you. That lies in God's hands alone. And we do not need to worry about how God will use this power and authority because Scripture makes it very clear to us. He is holy and just. He doesn't randomly assign people to hell, nor does he make wrong judgments. In fact, the good news of the gospel starts with the bad news that we all deserve to be subject to God's authority and his judgment that we see here in verse 5. None of us deserve to be in God's presence. Rather, we deserve to be cast into hell. Yet the gospel includes this amazing news that this terrible judgment that we all face, Jesus has taken upon himself on the cross. So that everyone who trusts that Jesus' death on the cross in their place satisfies God's judgment upon us that we are now forgiven of our sins and of our offenses against God, including our distortion of putting other people above God and fearing creation rather than our creator. If you've done that, if you've placed your trust in the Lord in this way, then this fearsome God no longer calls you his enemies, but calls you his children. Which brings us to the last two verses of our passage. If verses 4 and 5 seem like Jesus is speaking in rather harsh extremes to help us to see through the distortion of fearing man over the fear of the Lord, then verses 6 and 7 seem almost like a humorous twist of gentleness and tenderness in comparison. Verses 6 and 7 again, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of their head are all numbered, of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Those two verses help us understand the gospel cure for bad fear. Because they tell us two very profound truths about the fearsome and almighty God. They tell us that God knows us completely. And they tell us that God cares for us deeply. God knows you completely and he cares for you deeply. So much of our distorted fear of man centers around being exposed. Exposed perhaps to physical harm, but I think also perhaps even more so exposed to potential or what we imagine as condemnation and ridicule. For people to see us as we truly are, to know our darkest secrets and our most embarrassing moments. Jesus' words speak into that distorted fear. You see, we may be able to go through life hiding our dirty laundry so that others don't see it. But God sees everything. And he knows you and I, he knows us completely down to the very hairs of our head. 
And for some of us, for God, that's an easier job than for others. But even for all of us, he knows us so well that if we were to pour our hearts out to the Lord, confessing all of our thoughts and feelings, warts and all, God would not respond, wow, I had no idea. All right, let me take a time out. I need to reevaluate how we're doing things here, whether we're going to be hanging out anymore. No, God would say something perhaps like this. Thank you. Thank you for being honest. Would you like me to tell you what you missed? He knows you. He knows me. He knows the hair on your head, the freckles on your nose, the very first thought you had when you woke up this morning, the very last thought you'll have as you fall asleep tonight. He sees and knows everything about you. And yet, rather than push you away, he pulls you to himself in Christ. Because on the cross, Christ has dealt with everything that would cause God to push you away. And now God knows you as his beloved children, if you are a Christian. God knows you completely. And God cares for you deeply. God cares for the sparrow so small and fragile, of perhaps little worth. How much more does he care for those made in his own image? God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. Not because that was a fair price to pay, but because that was the cost to redeem sinners from sin and slavery to himself. And out of his love for us with which he loved us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit chose to pay that price for you and for me. God cares for you deeply. The gospel is that cure for bad fear, for distorted fear. As we are confronted with the enormity of God's love for us, the cross declares how he knows us, warts and all, and yet cares for us deeply to send Jesus to die for us, to bring us to himself, and to call us his children. There's two simple words that we read in verse 4 of our passage today that they are profound when we understand them in their proper context of this passage. Jesus calls those who are his disciples, my friends. My friends, if you are a Christian, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who has the power and the authority to lay down his life and to take it back up again, this Jesus calls you his friend. And when as Christians we embrace that reality, when we face trials against us and threats to distort our fear, and remember that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, calls us friend, I think then we can begin to echo the words of the Apostle Paul. We've already come across these in our Romans series. The closing words of Romans chapter 8. 
What then shall we say to these things? These fears that assail us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When the gospel has taken hold of you, and you have taken hold of the gospel, the power of God is at work in you to cure you of good fear gone bad, to heal and correct your distorted fears so that you and I can say those words in Romans 8. I know I want that for myself. I desire that for all of us here. And so let me conclude with a few practical suggestions of how to put the cure into practice. First of all, the cure of the gospel only works if you have received it. You cannot take the cure for your fear problem if you have not taken the cure for your sin problem. If you have not first of all bowed the knee before Christ, repented of your sins and accepted him as your only Lord and Savior. And I'd love to talk to you more about how you can do that. It's very simple. You pray. You submit to the Lord. Repent. You can talk to me. You can talk to somebody you came with perhaps. But that's the first order of business for you if you've not yet received the gospel cure. For those who have called upon Christ, then in terms of putting this cure for, for good fear gone bad into practice, there's some simple things for us to think about. The first of all, I'll call to evaluate our diet. I don't mean which food you're eating. I'm talking about your spiritual diet, your intake. Obviously, you need to be reading God's Word. God's Word is rich, a rich supply to us. But it is not the only thing you're taking in. And so, evaluate and be critical of what it is you are taking in, day in, day out, in different ways. And how does that speak to which fears you are cultivating? The world is speaking to you in so many different ways, through the news, through social media, simply through conversations with friends in the workplace or at school. And apart from Christ, 
Those conversations can only be telling you to fear something other than the Lord. So it's not that you should exclude them completely, necessarily, but take them critically. Evaluate what fears are these conversations, which fears are the, this intake elevating? And am I discerning? And am I fighting that with the fear of the Lord given to us in God's word? Am I fighting with the sword of the Spirit? Be critical and evaluate your diet. And make sure you are well equipped with God's words to fight fear, however it may present itself. One of the first passages of Scripture I ever memorized, Psalm 27, starts with these words. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That and so many other verses can fight for you when you're tempted to elevate anything above the fear of the Lord. Second practical point for the cure in practice is to pray. And I don't mean just to pray by yourself. That's obviously helpful and practical. But invite others into praying for you in very specific ways. Share how it is you specifically struggle with the fear of man or any other distorted fear in your life. And ask others to pray for you in that sense. In this, we have modeled for us the Apostle Paul. He wrote to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 6. He says to the church, pray for me. Pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. If the apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, needed others to pray for him in order to confess and profess his faith, and I think it's appropriate for you and I to invite others in to pray for us where we know we need help. The last thing in terms of the cure in practice is to try it. Try it. And do not wait for your feelings to tell you that you are ready. Don't wait to feel bold. Being brave isn't an absence of fear. It is being afraid and yet doing the right thing anyway. So step out when you are armed with God's word and fortified with the prayers of the saints. Step out and do what it is you know the Lord is calling you to. It may be something small, but it's a step. And that's what the Lord wants for you. Maybe it's just telling somebody tomorrow at work that you went to church on Sunday. Maybe it's telling somebody that you're a Christian. Maybe it's standing up for doing the right thing before God rather than what is popular amongst everybody else. Once you take in the Lord God's word and you know what is right, don't let your feelings dictate when you're ready. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis, taken from 
the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. If you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, this is the scene in which brother Peter is about to rescue his sisters from the wolves that serve the wicked white witch. And there's this one verse that I wrote down in the back of my Bible many years ago. It says, Peter did not feel very brave. Indeed, he felt he was going to be sick. But that made no difference to what he had to do. It made no difference to what he had to do. As Christians, we have been given a calling. We have been given work to do. And I hope and trust that this message this morning has helped us put things in right perspective, to address distorted fears, to rightly fear the Lord and yet know because he profoundly knows us, knows us deeply and knows us completely, that we can go out and do what he calls us to. The gospel is the cure for good fear gone bad. And I trust this morning it will serve you and equip you for the work of the Lord. Let's pray.